Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week I'm here with Vicky Walker to talk about her new book out this month. It's called Relatable, Exploring God, Love and Connection in the Age of Choice. Uh, it's already had a bit of a promotion this week on the Northern Line from me, uh, brandishing chapters including how to read Christian relationship advice and not die inside. Um, Vicky's kindly come to the Church Times office to talk about it. Vicky, your new book is dedicated to all those who kept on and for all those who couldn't. And I wondered if you could say a bit about um, what you meant by that. Well, I think often um, living the Christian life, people are told to expect some difficulties, but for some people it's just overwhelming, and particularly in the area of personal relationships, if that doesn't go to the pattern that they've told it should, um, it can just become too much. People can be incredibly damaged by what has happened to them in a church environment. So for me it was important, especially having had so many people tell me their stories, to just honour those who had stuck with it despite the ups and downs and those who just felt they needed to walk away and not to say that one had succeeded and one hadn't so Mm. I wanted the book really to be for everyone and it to be a testament to people who had endured and people who had endured by walking away it wasn't just for people who had stuck it out and done the right thing in inverted commas so And, and you're talking there about kind of sticking with church or sticking with faith Yeah, those two things are not synonymous anymore. So um, for some, it had meant walking away from faith altogether. For quite a lot, I think, it was about how they navigated their faith journey and the fact that they wouldn't necessarily need to be in church um, in order to do that. And that's a growing number, particularly for women um, who are just more and more finding that church just doesn't fit, doesn't suit them. Um, And not in a superficial way, not in a way that suggests that they're... um, Uh, you know failing to to conform although they might be but actually that they're just being stifled to the point where their faith becomes something that harms them. I first came across your name at Greenbelt a few years ago um, where your first book Do I Have to Be Good All the Time was on sale Um, so for our readers can you tell a bit uh, tell us a bit about who you are and why you came to write this book? Well, the first book was really just me thinking out loud and asking questions, and I deliberately didn't answer the question, do I have to be good all the time? I do get asked quite a lot what the answer is, and I'd say, well, you know, go read it and you tell me what you think. Because I think there is that sense that we're supposed to live up to something, and we're supposed to uh, hit a certain standard. Um, But what became increasingly apparent after writing that and people who contacted me to tell me their stories was that it was different for everybody there certainly wasn't this standard um, or this uh, blueprint that people could just stick to have a successful Christian life Um, and I started to wonder more and more about what was happening to those stories and whether we were just mis-selling people well it was it was really apparent really early on that we were mis-selling people Um, the way of doing Christian life so I wanted to talk about that in a in a wider context so conversations had also been happening elsewhere about um, how you know society was changing very very quickly and often the church's response seemed to be quite knee-jerk to go in the opposite direction and to pull back to something that people would claim was biblical um, but actually it you know if it wasn't if it was biblical we could be talking about um, you know polygamy 
dowries, people being exchanged for livestock and um, people marrying within their families and so on, or the New Testament version, which again is very different to what actually was this weird amalgamation of, uh, you know, Tudor times, Victorian times, the 1950s, a really very sort of socially conservative norm that was being presented as as normal and as the thing to aspire to. So while those conversations were happening elsewhere, Christians seemed to be just regurgitating with a slightly different spin that things should stay the same, but actually to shift back in time. So certain narratives like the, you know, what was started to be called the better story narrative or even people referencing science about now we understand how, how the brain works and now we understand that this is actually how you know God made us to be. It was really cherry picking a lot of what worked for people uh, and also what science was really saying or not. So I wanted to dig into a lot of that and understand, you know, the history, the philosophy, in some cases, the theology and the science to actually say, well, where are we getting this from? What's helping and what's hurting and how do we walk through it? And that's kind of specifically in this area of relationships and connection. So your book um, isn't just for people who are um, single or dating. Um, there's a lot in there about marriage, um, about different life stages and, and how we kind of negotiate our relationships. Yeah, it's about life as a whole. I didn't want to write a book that, that suggested to people that they went from one stage to another and then they could tick a box and, and walk away um, from ever having to think about it again. And certainly people who contacted me it was really ranging from teens up to over 60s and people had experiences that went across the breadth of their life it wasn't almost nobody I wouldn't say nobody at all but almost nobody could say I did everything um, that I was supposed to do and it worked brilliantly that that almost never happened for most people even if they were married they'd say well yeah I am married to someone that I'm really happy with but it's not the ideal it's not the perfect thing um you know people with young children people who'd gone through decades of marriage people who were desperate to be married um and and what it meant to be single as well you know there were just Mm -hmm. lots of things about how society at large was much more embracing of singleness and the church still wasn't the church was still sidelining that so it felt that you know while times were changing we couldn't then just divide people into these categories and say well if Mm. you're here this is the advice for you if you're over here this is the advice for you and those things don't actually meet because you know wedding day doesn't change a person's fundamental character or how they relate to other people so it was much more for me about the whole life journey and what we could learn from each other. Um, Some of the most fascinating bits of the book um, come from some of the respondents to your online real life love survey um, that was filled in by nearly 1500 people Um, and people have been really honest so um, the quotes are anonymized but um, and I found reading a lot of them very moving Um, so I wondered what it was like for you going through the responses and and particularly sort of whether anything really surprised you? Uh, nothing surprised me in terms of <laughs> in terms of the stories people told um, and their experiences, which is not to minimise anything that people told me. I felt very honoured that people would trust me with their stories. And actually, even though the survey was anonymous, there was an option for people to leave their details. And quite a few hundred people did. They weren't ashamed of what they'd um, experienced and they wanted to be honest about it and get that into the open so um not not the range of stories but the amount of people who had a lot to say surprised me i thought maybe a couple of hundred people would want to say a little bit about what happened in their lives um and that many responded within the first weekend so 
and at that point mm. I thought oh this is going to be a bigger bigger thing than I'd realized so um, I think what surprised me was just how common the themes were um, and also that people really wanted to try and find solutions as well it wasn't a, a negative right this happened this was bad therefore I'm 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 done with it but actually people were very nuanced very um, uh, realistic uh, not idealistic in the sense that they thought I have to reach this standard or my life is a, a failure um, but actually nothing had really changed for a lot of people since maybe the 60s or 70s through to mm. the present day they were hearing a lot of the same advice that kind of confirmed what I thought rather than um, uh, went in the opposite direction so not surprising but I did want to then do it justice so the project turned from what I thought would probably be about six months into three years of really mm. just digging into that and looking at the real themes the real heart of what people were saying um, and wanting to honour their honesty in that and do that justice and um, and just write a book that reflected that with compassion and put across something that I've felt anyone could pick up and understand you know have a window into someone else's life rather than only see things through their own perspective so I thought we should be learning from each other um, and I wanted to do that using those stories and anonymized was important as well because I didn't want it to be either about me or about any one particular person on a pedestal or having jumped off a pedestal or fallen off a pedestal um, you know it needed to be much more universal um, without that being manufactured and that is definitely what came across. Mm. Um, one of the findings that stood out to me was that only one in five of those respondents said they would agree with Christian culture's predominant messages about relationships. Um, so if we just wind back um, what do you think those messages are? <laughs> I, d I deliberately included a list in the book of what um, people had had told me I mean there's lots of examples throughout the book but there was almost a checklist of you know a woman shall wait a man shall choose in good time a woman shall be grateful to be chosen there would be no sex at all no glimmer of sex you know all caps no sex um, until they got married and then everything would be absolutely perfect and wonderful but actually for, for most people that really wasn't what had happened but what tended to be reflected in certainly who talked and wrote about those things and in who led churches was that they were the people it was more likely to have happened for so mm. you know the, they would perhaps be in quite a, a traditional culture a traditional setting where the man would have at the right time gone out and taken a wife and there were men that I met who talked in that way they were ready to take a wife and they would go and look for someone who fitted the bill and men and women wanted quite different things as well so not not on everything but you know women their primary thing was someone of the same faith that was not men's primary thing so there were differences for um, I guess what people prioritized but actually it was much easier for men um, which I'm guessing there may be men listening who say well it wasn't for me and mm. that was another issue as well for people who just found well this didn't live up to the thing that I was told it was going to be. But actually, for men, in theory, in some places, they would be told, well, it's all on you. You just go and pick when you're ready. You know, and women will be grateful to be to be chosen. You know, these these were messages that I heard in, in interviews and certainly just in environments I was in as well. So 
I just heard them echoed back throughout the whole project that mm. you know it would be straightforward for men and women would then find their purpose through that um, people could allude to issues in marriage but it would have to be very euphemistic they could talk about oh it's, oh, it's hard but it's worth it and without ever actually saying you know we never have sex I can't stand the sight of him she does this thing I had no idea about um, you know or fertility issues or you know anything that might come up that just took people off this very narrow path that they've been told should be normal and it was predominantly the dividing line was no sex wedding day as much sex as you can have Mm -hmm. and that seemed to be the thing that really threw people um, aside from how men and women were meant to interrelate which was men have an impossible to control sex drive women will have to learn to go along with that so there was never really any talk of men not wanting to do that not having that same desire uh, and women and obviously I'm talking purely in heterosexual terms here because I wanted to really focus on advice for what healthy heterosexuality could look like because that clearly wasn't something that the church was focusing on overall most of the conversations were elsewhere and old advice was coming uh, back into the back into the fore so I think for women you know that a lot of women who wrote said you know what was I supposed to do with this sex drive I was told that I shouldn't have Um, And as they got older as well, there was definitely a point where women would then get, oh, it hasn't worked the way I was told it was meant to work. It being the perfect plan, I haven't been chosen. Uh, Now what? Um, Whereas society outside of that was obviously um, allowing women to have, and men to have lots more different experiences or different ways of living. The Christians or predominant messages were very, very limited. um, But most of the advice, most of the books, probably most of the teaching sermons and so on, would be from people, probably men, who'd had those experiences themselves and therefore could stand there and in a very casual way just, you know, throw their wife and children in as sermon illustrations or they were single women who were waiting well, teaching other women, waiting well, again inverted commas, teaching other women how to be patient until their time arrived and their season of waiting and, you know, praying for your future husband is a is quite a popular book in that world in the in the book you draw a lot on existing literature in this space um many of them american and with some quite extraordinary titles um (laughs) one of them was um joshua harris's i kiss dating goodbye which came out in 1997 Um, and he recently apologized for the harms caused by the book Um, and i noticed that some of the reaction in britain um, including in christian circles was a bit baffled Um, but you suggest in the book that purity culture which Joshua Harris was very much part of isn't just an American phenomenon so could you tell us a bit about how you would define kind of purity culture and what sort of harms you think it's given rise to? Well there are American uh, writers and thinkers who could do this a lot better than me because I think we got an oddly imported version of it and I do think it exists here but predominantly it's the idea that um women can cause men to stumble men are always dealing with their um, out of control sex drives women by what they what they wear or how they cover themselves or not can can cause men to um, to fall into lust and so on and, and everyone should be staying pure keeping themselves pure so not even a thought not even a an inkling of anything sexual um, and that was built into I guess a lot of American teaching in schools which obviously here is quite different Um, I did talk to Linda K. Klein who's an American writer who's just written a book on uh, purity culture and um, that's definitely worth looking at to understand the more ingrained social impact of it but 
in America, there were a lot of federally funded education programs, the True Love Weights program and, and other similar things, which were all about just, you know, abstinence all the way until you got married. Um, and that led to some really quite unusual behaviour and definitions of the things that people would do sexually, but then describe themselves still as virgins because it hadn't been a particular act because it wasn't a specific thing that could have resulted in pregnancy um, therefore they would say well I'm still a virgin I'm still pure um, or that you know there was more pregnancy as a result of people not having any information or any knowledge of, of contraception or not having access to it so Joshua Harris's book I think what was predominant there was this idea of courtship again and going back to um, I guess you could say some Old Testament things although I don't think it strictly was that but maybe more Victorian or just older ways of doing things whereby I think in one of his books that you know women shouldn't sit on the same sofa as a man shouldn't sit next to him on the sofa unless they were married because it was giving too much uh, to someone that she hadn't then committed to so <laughs> you know there were lots of things that were very extreme and involved multiple generations of a family as well it wasn't just a straightforward mm. um, mutual decision between two people it was a man going and uh, you know, being cleared by the fact by the father specifically, um, and the woman then being given permission to go and marry, um, and then the pattern repeating mm. with each generation. So I think sort of that sounds, I think, very extreme. Um, but you kind of highlight in the book that there are elements of purity culture very much alive in in British churches as well. Yeah. I think because. Uh, particularly now there's a crossover so there are people going from British churches to American churches they're going to learn some of that resources are coming over here and there aren't really very many British voices who are offering anything different so be it more conservative or more liberal we tend to mostly hear from American voices anyway so because that then stays within church cultures it's not something that we would be taught in schools unless we were in very specifically christian schools mm. um, people are then working out in what's probably more of a secular culture There's, britain is definitely more um, faithless than america is faithless in that sense at least nominally that people are expected to live i guess it's the old kind of be in the world but not of the world in its sexual mm. context <laughs> that you're meant to be in that odd environment where you exist completely differently and then people start to talk about that being an example that if I if I just do it this way I'm setting an example to the world uh, and there are certainly people that I know who chose not to have sex before they got married um, and found that an interesting conversation point with their friends who felt differently to them so couples who said well, we chose to do that, and when we explained to people why, people found some good things from that. They learned some things from that about, actually, you can't rely on sex um, as a way to resolve your differences. You know, we had to rely on conversation. We had to get to know each other intimately, emotionally. We couldn't have chemistry replacing communication and so on. So there were, there were positives for that as an example. But I think where it tended to get a little bit odd, because you could say that they were the successful couples, if you like, where it tended to get a bit odd for people was when they were still getting into their 30s, 40s, 50s and were still single, were still holding on, still waiting. Um, and people would say, well, you know, what for? What do you think is going to happen? And I guess some people were building sex up to this huge thing. Uh, and often spiritualising the waiting process as well, that actually the longer I wait, the better it will be. 
So I did ask people about all those kinds of things as mm. well. Uh, and it was a minority who actually thought, you know, there is one person for me, God will bring them at the right time. I just need, my part is to just wait and make myself ready. And then the longer I wait, the better it will be. Uh, and there were people who did think that. And I think that is often the Americanized element that is creeping in more than something that necessarily British people have created for themselves. But I also think that's quite a good containment strategy for church leaders who just don't want to deal with anything too messy. (laughs) (laughs) We will come on to that. Um, um, Another book um, that came out recently that addresses purity culture is Nadia Bowles-Weber's book, Shameless, um, which takes quite a radical approach to teaching on spirituality. So she writes, if the teachings of the church are harming the bodies and spirits of people, we should rethink those teachings. And I noticed in your survey that only around a third of your respondents agreed that sex before marriage was always wrong. Um, so I guess I'm just wondering where do we go from here? And um, I guess some people would say that there's a danger that in throwing out purity culture, um, we throw out too much and that there are aspects of Christian teaching about sex and relationships that we do need to retain. I think we should rethink because clearly a lot of people are being hurt by whether they call it purity culture or not and that's not really what my book was about addressing purity culture it is part of the landscape but I wanted to look more broadly Um, and I know early on when I talked about whether Christians spiritualize their desires I was contacted by someone orthodox who said you know you're saying that like it's a bad thing and actually everything about us should be spiritualized nothing should be separated out and I think sometimes the language that we use to describe things can become quite narrow and quite contextualized either within denominations or within interpretations and I think we should keep rethinking it should be a fresh and dynamic conversation all the time otherwise nothing would have moved on since the old testament or And I say that more than the New Testament, because actually the New Testament offered quite a radical rethinking, you know, quite a different model uh, where community was reshaped around a common goal. You know, it wasn't any more about the nuclear family. And I guess that, you know, in perhaps Roman households, it wasn't anyway. There were lots of different elements that made up a household. But suddenly people were being told radically that it wasn't just about who you married and, you know, Paul's basic message was stay single if you can if you're too horny get married you know the church doesn't teach that (laughs) but that that could be purity culture if you like but it's a lot more pragmatic than how people are told to spiritualize this internalized never a thought never you know take every thought captive um, never think of anything that could be damaging harming your spiritual um, self or polluting your brain in that way so I think what we've created is something that's so unrealistic that actually it's not the earthiness that the New Testament um, brought together. It's not that kind of real, look, you might just not be able to control yourself and if not, that's fine, marry someone close to you. It was never the keep waiting for the one. You know, when Jesus talks about the one, he's not talking about who you marry. He's He literally only references that in the sheep that's gone astray, you know, bringing someone back into community. That is the only time he talks about the one in that way. But that's not what the church has done. So for me, um, I was interested and I had to do this some a few times, but the number of people who found, who said that they either would or had had sex before marriage and those who said they hadn't or would, I hope I've said that the right way around, uh, split 40.6%. And I had to go back and do this sums again and go, that seems really odd that it's just 
you know, it's just so not one thing or the other, the way that we're told it would be. And often people had said, well, actually, I did have sex before in previous relationships and now I'm going to wait. Or if I got married again, I definitely wouldn't wait. Um, And it was a learning process for people. It wasn't just a simple thing of, if you do this, this will happen and that will give you your answer. It was definitely an evolution for people. Um, And those who said, you know, a lot of people said that their faith had influenced their relationships, the vast majority of people who responded. But half of those, again, said how that had manifested, had changed over time. So I don't think it's as simple as just saying, should we say sex before marriage is wrong, when actually for some people, that will be a question that they resolve at the age of 18 or 19 if they marry young, or they're still trying to work out when they're in their 60s. I think it has to be more nuanced and it has to be more about people's individual journeys and how they have you know, perhaps uh, the situations they've faced or the choices they've had to make. Um, A major theme that emerged for me was this perceived disconnect between people and church leaders. Um, So only 19% of your respondents agreed that the church understood modern relationship challenges well. Um, Almost half felt that church leaders were often out of touch, which was with what was happening romantically in their congregations. And only a quarter of people said that they would go to their faith leader for advice about a relationship. So what would your message be for any clergy um, kind of listening in? Um, Should... (laughs) Obviously, there could be a nightmare scenario of clergy actually surveying us all about our our relationship history. But um, I was really interested in that sense that particularly about whether um, really the church, whatever we mean by that, um, understands what's happening in modern relationships and some of the stories that emerged from your survey. My suspicion is that a lot of church leaders are probably very relieved that they're out of the loop, to be honest. I think for many, they didn't follow a calling into the church to then hear about whether somebody's been sexting or not. It probably wasn't even something that people did maybe when <laughs> uh, when they were still training. So I think for me, one of the things that came out strongly was that this doesn't need to be a front-led, one-person-owned situation in a church, that actually people have lots of wisdom to share between them Um, cross-culturally, cross-generationally, across different life stages. So it doesn't need to be that a church leader then becomes an all-knowing guru on relationships as well. But what I think should happen is that people within the church are empowered to help each other through those situations as well. So I did include a whole chapter in the book about church and practical steps. And a lot of that was taken from what people had said that they wanted to see differently. And often it was, I don't want to be told uh, what to do or what not to do, but I do want someone to just listen to me. I just want to be heard. Or I'm not really sure um, what I should be doing, but I want help figuring that out. And so helping people develop discernment, focusing on emotional health, just the whole holistic walk through the Christian life seems like a much better way to go than someone at the front saying okay we'll now do a three-week series on what Mm. it's like to be single or uh, something that actually doesn't and often that person is married as well so (laughs) you know talk to people who said well I just boycott anything on singleness because the person delivering it is married Mm. so what do they know they were single when they were a teenager yeah I was really (laughs) pleased to see that you um, interviewed Kate Wharton who we featured in the Church Times um who I think is a really good example of of somebody who kind of can talk about singleness from personal experience. Yeah, yeah. and there's great people, you know, Single Friendly Church have really put some focus behind this and creating resources. 
again, this is probably where there's a good uh, crossover with the States because there's a lot happening in America as well to give singleness more of a positive spin and, and profile in that way. So I think there are people more at the grassroots who are having to find each other in order to try and change the conversation. So I talked to quite a lot of single people, people who'd adopted on their own after reaching a certain point, people who had come into the church later having been single until early adulthood who just said, what on earth is going on? You know, why is this this place obsessed with who I marry or don't when I've grown up without that even being an issue. So actually those external voices, that clarity of thought that comes in through people who aren't in leadership, I think shouldn't be ignored. I think it's Mm. absolutely vital to what happens next in the conversation. You also talk about the disconnect between um, the story that the church tells about relationships and that um, quite kind of simple trajectory that you talked about earlier and I guess the kind of messy reality of people's relationships Mm. and and dating experiences. Um, So only 13% of your respondents said that their romantic lives had been straightforward and happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wondered if whether part of the answer that you're recommending is, is more honesty Yeah, I think honesty doesn't have to be confessional in that sense. Mm. It doesn't have to mean people standing up and talking about the worst things that have happened to them or the worst things they've ever done. But honesty in the sense that they don't have to hide anything, um, however that is um, manifest in in their environment. But more trust, I think, is important, more discernment and lower expectations. I think the idea that People are either sexless until they're married and then it's just never mentioned anyway. doesn't really help. Um, And I think for a lot of leaders, they probably don't understand why it matters so much because it didn't cause them the same pain or confusion or uh, that same journey that a lot of the people that they now have to be surrounded by have been on or are still on. And that could be for lots of different reasons. I mean, the church is obviously a place that attracts people who are vulnerable, who are going through lots of um, different situations, who perhaps have additional needs or their social skills may not be uh, particularly refined. So it's not necessarily like an episode of Made in Chelsea or something (laughs) where, you know, you're just watching these dynamics of who's going to who's going to get off with who this weekend or wow, did someone just look at someone during worship? It's it's not that kind of thing it's much Mm. more complicated and much less glamorous in a lot of cases Um, and I think often we tend to normalize the exceptions that we tend to have this Cinderella story uh, and big up this wedding day and social media obviously hasn't helped in terms of people um, being able to create their own narrative and filter that and make that look very pronounced and very special and very elevated but I think we are all guilty of it in that it's suddenly seen as very appealing to do that because you get to leave lots of other things behind. Someone actually said to me, and I and I laughed at this when they said it, and I was wrong to laugh. But they said, um, oh, you know, I remember years ago when you know when I was uh, you know a young man and I looked around the church and I saw all these married couples and I thought, oh, you know. What must they know that I don't know? And you know, and then I, then I got married, and I, you know, I, I graduated to that level. I, you know, I was elevated, and um, and then you know, and then I realised, yeah, I've made it, I've made it, and I laughed because I thought, oh, they're obviously joking. And then they went, why are you laughing? <laughs> and I said, oh, you meant it. And I went, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've gone to the next level. And and people, people definitely had that sense of promotion that actually, if you go through these stages, then you suddenly become a better person, a more important person. And mm. um, 
and even though you're not a more important person, the church will often tell you that you are, you're suddenly more invited to things um, than before, invited into positions of responsibility. And I talked to married couples who said, you know, we have nothing about us that wants to be involved in any kind of leadership, but when we turn up to a new church, uh, you know, they were a photogenic, young, energetic, outgoing couple, they were suddenly being given groups to run, ministries to be involved in, just because of how they presented. And, um, you know, I had gone to similar churches on my own. In fact, I could be to some of the same churches on my own and had a really different experience of nobody actually would speak to me when I went in. Perhaps I was just visiting or, um, you know, not places that I necessarily stayed for a long time, but just these very marked differences between it's no wonder people put this kind of thing on a pedestal because it did involve this promotion. Mm. It involved this increased cachet within um, that circle. You um, write in the book that actually between a quarter and a third of congregations are single. Um, And obviously that's going to include um, people in many different situations, um, widowed or divorced or separated, um, as well as um, people who are um, kind of starting out and um, and hoping to get married. But only 2% of your single respondents said that they felt called to singleness and about 40% said specifically that they didn't feel called to singleness. Mm. You also talk a lot in the book about the fact that relationship advice tends to come from people who um, married at a young age Um, and a major theme that emerged um, seems to be that the church is in some way failing single people Mm. Um, and I wondered what you think needs to change. I think there's some fundamental things about how we define success which is what I've just alluded to Um, and who feels valued. I think people like Kate Wharton are a brilliant example of women who are pioneering something that's quite different and quite unashamedly saying, this is the process that I went through, these are the choices that I've ended up making, this is how I'm walking that out. Um, And, you know, she is a real gift in that respect, that she can verbalise that and personify something and has great leadership gifts and a very strong, focused um, purpose to her life as well. And more stories like that, I think, are really beneficial, but they don't have to be the stories of success. They just have to be the stories of our lives, the way that we're walking through them. So often who gets to lead, which in certain church cultures seems to matter more than most, you know, that's, um, but there is a sense that there is a, there's more value for people who have perhaps married the right person. And for women, that means they get to have pet projects where, you know, they maybe fight um, trafficking or they get involved in something where they're allowed to express the thing that they feel God has called them to. Whereas for single people, um, they're perhaps they've just got to pay the bills you know they're living in a shared house they don't have the security to really indulge in anything there are women who pioneer there are men who pioneer um, there's lots of things that that can be done now that actually I think for a lot of women if we looked at the greater arc of history women's independence and the fact that we can go out and have jobs leave the house have friends you know create our own um, realities in some sense is still quite radical it's still quite revolutionary and I think that's easily forgotten in this in this culture that really values marriage that actually if you went back even to uh, the 50s or beyond that I mean even the 70s you know when women rape was still uh, legal in marriage or it wasn't illegal uh, you know women not being able to have bank accounts credit cards there being no maternity pay lots of things that just meant women could not have independent lives and I think actually understanding that women now have these great opportunities that they didn't have before um, 
and it may just be, I think often that's pitched as, oh, it's just for a season, it's just for a period until, but actually, you know, definitely what I learned from listening to so many people's stories is it doesn't just change when you get married. You know, people still want the same things. They want to, their personalities don't fundamentally change. You know, their characters Mm. are the same. They want to go and do the things they were doing before, be it their work or the things they feel called to do. They may do that alongside someone. They may have different um, goals, different aims as the person that they're now um, coupled with. But Actually, for single people, there is a, a great opportunity and a great freedom that can come with that. Um, but also, I think we need to recognise where single people need extra support and don't have someone that prioritises them, um, because that is also something that the church should be doing. It shouldn't just be um, focused on how can we benefit married people. And I know certainly I was, I've been in churches where there's been a sense of, well, you, you could offer to babysit so married couples could go and... Um, you know have some nights out together or you know it's great because you can come early on a Sunday to help set up and you know it was always things that actually who who does that benefit again it was rarely about benefiting a a person in their own right and much more about this hierarchical structure that valued marriage above all else. Um, Another theme that comes out in the book is the gender imbalance in churches Um, and you highlight that those respondents who are most likely to describe themselves as feeling hopeless um, were women in their late 20s to mid 30s who were single and looking for a significant relationship and I guess what is your message for um, those women and has the church really grappled um, with the ramifications of that gender imbalance? It has not (laughs) (laughs) and not in the ways that matter anyway I think what tends to happen is a response where certain people then start to speak on behalf of men and what needs to be done to bring more men in. So we get this um, evangelistic approach that is very gendered and based on a very gendered church as well. So it basically hinges on stereotypes. It's saying, you know, actually, if we go out and we talk to men um, about manly things and we tell them that this is a place that they can flourish because they can be warriors and they can be leaders and we'll give them curry and we'll give them bacon rolls and they can play with fire and, you know, all these things that are very, very manly um, will bring them in. And actually what you have a lot of the time is um, very faithful women within churches who are told that they're the problem. So... There is a shift at the moment from talking about a feminised church to talking about a romanticised church, um, because I obviously go into this in more detail in the book. Actually, what are classed as masculine and feminine traits aren't really things that are attributed to men or to women. And there was a study about um, Anglican clergy and how they were more likely to have feminine traits as men which would then lead me to think well they're not really feminine traits as such they are just personality traits and that mix of um, uh, characteristics that runs through each person um, is something that we should be looking at more as the whole and more as individuals rather than trying to get people to fit so alongside that I think for a lot of men they don't want to be told that they have to fit a stereotype just as women don't want to be told Mm. that either so often the gender imbalance the approach is to almost hand that problem over to people who say don't worry we'll we'll approach getting more men in but often there's a class element to that which is overlooked as well so Richard Beck is a great uh, person to follow up with this American theologian who uh, has sort of unpicked the class elements of why it is that we tend to approach masculinity as a certain um, set of criteria 
Whereas really for women, I think emphasizing that female um, default status is kind of passive and waiting and nurturing and supportive, then just encourages women to sit and wait and hope for these manly men to come bursting into church. And then suddenly they will be brilliantly matched and um, often that's pitched as then we will have more generations of Christian children and Christian grandchildren and so on. Um, and it shouldn't really about this be about this kind of focus on procreation anyway. It should be about who we are living now and how we're relating to each other. So, you know, women being expected to stay and be grateful may have worked for quite a long time, but I think it will work less and less. And um, Barna did some research on what they were calling women who love Jesus, but not the church. I've probably slightly misremembered how they categorised it, but women are now leaving the church you know they don't see that they need to stay but we can't group everyone together just like we can't group all men together and say if we tell them that they can come and um you know play with fire at our curry nights then they're christians you know if we do fewer emotional songs and more rousing hymns then we'll definitely get them in um and there are some places that will work but it's also tied into quite a lot of political Um, particularly in America, political thought. So David Murrow, who wrote the book about why men hate going to church, was also the communications director for Sarah Palin, um, Republican vice presidential candidate. And there is an awful lot of cultural crossover there between what a man is, what a woman is, and how those two can just... They've got to live together, because God said they've got to live together, but actually they're never going to be the same. They're never going to see eye to eye. Whereas I think for a lot of um, men and women, they just don't have that degree of difference. They don't feel like they need to find that almost like that sense of conflict or disharmony as part of their natures. So I don't think we have really looked at that. And I think society, which is evolving much more quickly in that sense... Um, is something the church is almost like pulling back into those stereotypes to try and counteract but I think for a lot of men the gender imbalance is damaging as well because they then feel overwhelmed they're told it should be easy to just take a wife pick someone Um, and there was someone in the book who said you know if if anyone had told me I'd still be single in my 50s I wouldn't have believed them Um, because there were so many options it seemed but that doesn't mean people then know how to form a relationship so you know, men being spoiled for choice isn't something that's good for them in mm. the long run either. I think connected to that is this question of um, being in a relationship with or marrying um, somebody who doesn't describe themselves as a Christian. Mm. Um, and I think a majority of your um, female correspondents um, attached a lot of importance to marrying another Christian, um, more so perhaps than men. Um, and I was really interested that you spoke to people who had married um, people who weren't Christians. And I wondered sort of what you learned about that. I guess sort of a lot of the conversations in the church can be um, around an anxiety about how that might pan out and there's perhaps still an encouragement to try and find somebody within the church or marry another Christian and the risks of not doing so but um, what does the reality look like? For a lot of, I mean to be honest I started by just saying who does this issue affect and I did a separate poll, a smaller poll to just say if you're someone that's married to or in a relationship with someone who isn't a Christian I would love to hear from you and everyone who responded was a woman so it wasn't that I necessarily sought out women in that situation it was that women responded and then I did more interviews um, with women as well um, simply because just men didn't respond on this issue at all so um, 
it was a smaller um, number of men compared to women, a smaller percentage that said it was their number one priority. Men wanted someone kind, that was their number one thing. Mm. And women wanted someone of the same faith. So although the numbers weren't uh, miles apart, if you're then talking about, or the percentages weren't miles apart, but if you're talking in numbers with a smaller number of men, then you have an even bigger number problem because then men will be happy to look outside the church or they will be happy to explore more and they've got longer to do it in you know men did not feel the same pressure um men didn't report feeling hopeless by a certain age in the way that women did so um there were different dynamics at play there as well um and i think what i learned was that there was not a single story you know women had not been led astray as the church (laughs) um would often suggest you know there was definitely this kind of fear-mongering approach to keeping women within the walls of the church and if they looked beyond that then they were at risk of being deceived by the devil and led away and getting caught up with someone who was probably secretly abusive and you know destined to kind of take them away from their true calling and true life and you know and actually then talking to women and I asked all of those questions you know was this a fear that you would be led astray or you and it just wasn't something that factored into most women's I don't think any women's um, thinking when they'd made that decision, you know, they'd been very clear headed about it and they'd had practical reasons or, um, you know, they dated Christians and found there was no difference or they'd been treated more disrespectfully by Christian men who, again, had all these other options. So it wasn't that, you know, they couldn't meet a brilliant Christian man or they were just waiting and it hadn't happened. It's like they'd, they'd done that as well and they'd actually found that they were meeting amazing um potential life partners outside of the church and that had a very significant effect i think on how people then decided what they should do because actually those people that they met didn't have the same baggage they were prepared to come to church with them to explore with them to do alpha courses sometimes to do things that meant that they were prepared to be part of that life as well so actually these women were often bringing more men into the church than men doing manly men's evangelism and it was never a case and never anything that I encountered through researching that side of things where anyone said well perhaps the answer to more men in the church is trusting women to have discerning um, conversations outside of the church with men that they meet who may end up becoming part of this. <laughs> that mm. just didn't seem to figure. Mm. And yet, actually, that was what I was finding more and more is that uh, women were basically integrating men into the church in a way that men weren't integrating men into the church, which is not to say that no men come into the church see that kind of evangelism or anything um, that diminishes that in its entirety, but actually that it was never part of the conversation that women could proactively be part of that through the people that they met and through the decisions they made. Um, And often it was more about whose comfort level mattered more. So can we just keep the church as it is? Can the women sit quietly? Can we wait for the men to turn up? Um, And for a lot of women, I guess in the past, there would be more women who would have said, yep I'll do that I'll keep praying I'll read you know praying for my future husband and similar books um, of which there are many Um, but there are no similar books for men you know that wasn't the same thing and because often what wasn't being presented was a mutual relationship it was one where the man would lead and provide and set the tone men found that incredibly pressuring as well 
So that wasn't necessarily leading to something that was going to be healthy for either party. So actually women who were deciding, or not even necessarily deciding, but definitely having to think through what it meant to encounter people that could be good life partners for them, um, had very different uh, experiences to perhaps the church leader who had never had to think about that. You know, they'd met someone probably quite early on. Um, things had been very simple and straightforward. They had a, you know, a good Christian wife, uh, as as they were told that they probably would have. Um, but certainly when you talk to perhaps women, young women now who are being ordained, often they're turning up to colleges where all the men are already married, you know. So it's there isn't just one size fits all. It is definitely something... Um, that has to be addressed and for leaders it may be hypothetical but for a lot of women it isn't you know it's their real lives it's their one path through this this time of their life so I think one of the things that came out very strongly and I think everyone should learn from was that the response of friends and family mattered more than almost anything so for people to say I've met this person and to get an immediate negative response or to be told they were sinning or to be told that they could no longer be a part of the church in the same way. Um, it was incredibly damaging, not just for that person, but for the person who they were trying to demonstrate their faith to, because actually it just confirmed all of the negative suspicions that they might have had. And not everyone did. You know, Some people met people who were very open-minded, who were on their own spiritual journeys, who went on to become Christians. Um, it, you know, it was mixed, it was different in every situation, but that initial response was probably the one thing that made a difference to how things then progressed, mm. which I think is something that the church has been really bad at, really bad on the whole. People leaving churches, in fact, one of the stories was that someone had got engaged to someone who wasn't a Christian, and they'd just left their church and gone to another one where they knew that they would be accepted and be able to be married there. And, and that shouldn't happen. There should be, you know, if people want to be that forthright about a particular element of um, how they run their church, then that is going to be the that's going to be the output. But that is going to mean that there are a lot of people who are just never comfortable in that environment as well. Mm. Um, reading the book, I was really struck by how strange some of it might sound um, to those who haven't grown up in this sort of subculture that it describes. Mm. And I guess kind of even within um, Christianity, there will probably be listeners who think I was never given those messages <laughs> or, um, um, or who might see it as, as kind of a specific um, subdivision of, of Christianity as a whole. Um, and I think many people, um, particularly outside the church, would find the idea of avoiding sex before marriage or not living together first um, or kind of thinking about what the Bible says about love lives um, really quite bizarre. So I wondered what you think that Christianity um, has to say to society. So does it still have something precious to say about sex and relationships? And actually, is it okay to have something distinctive mm. and something different to what maybe society at large is saying? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is, again, looking historically at when something becomes niche and becomes subcultural, because you'd only really have to go back to the last century to find that the not living together, not having sex before marriage and so on, was the mainstream. Mm. That was how society was structured. So um, there was an interesting uh, survey done after the Second World War when there had been a lot more sexual activity when people had um, either felt or used the excuse of imminent death as a reason to 
play around. Um, and after that, when there was a big national survey and the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time had said a return to Christian values in society, people agreed on the on the whole, although they did agree that it was more acceptable for men to have experience outside of marriage than it was for women. Nothing has changed in some respects. So, so that was the mainstream. You know, society ran on those values. And what's happened is not that um, Christians have changed necessarily, but society has changed. Christians' views have become marginalised. So I suppose as we go on from here, it will be less likely that people will understand that in that historical context. So suddenly you're left with people saying, well, no, but this is this is how we're a Christian country. This is how it's always been done. Um, and, and they're right in some respects, except that things did start to change and the church didn't. So I think probably um, we need to understand what we're calling people back to. Is it to the 1950s? Or is it to say, actually, if we go back to what the New Testament said things should look like, they could be really different you know if we're talking about the fruits of the spirit if we're talking about love joy peace and so on the world needs more of those not less so actually i think that distinctive and how we treat each other and treating um, each other as brothers and sisters in a wider community and a family that um, isn't just by accident of birth but actually about who we are brought together with i think those things are incredibly relevant and important and society's lacking them you know people are talking more and more about being lonely mental health issues are on the rise all of these things can and should be counterbalanced by this idea of a a radical loving community um, where it isn't about who marries who as much as it is about how we look after each other so to me that distinctive is is more about that outward focus and what society could look like if we did prefer the other, if we did look out for people in that way. And those to me are the distinctives more than perhaps the minor details, which is not to say that you know who you choose to have sex with or not is a minor detail because it's obviously a deeply personal thing. But I think when we get focused on those things and we don't look at actually what, what would it look like if we lived in that way, um, those other things would start to work themselves out in quite a different way if we weren't just focused on, um, well, you wait over here until a man comes and claims you and then he will make all the decisions for you, um, which is what people were saying, either they've been taught or people still saying they do, you know, the book stops with the man. That's the sort of thing that I think we should park immediately and we should just diminish all those stereotypes and remove them from the conversation and actually look at those distinctives as being something that offers us this radical alternative to a selfish society and to communities that isolate people, um, which I think the church does brilliantly in lots of ways. But if we could then take marriage off the pedestal that it's been put on and we could stop prioritising that as a thing to aspire to, then I think we would start to see something that offers a distinctive that is really attractive to people rather than something that turns them away. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.